welcome to episode 10 of the Fire Safety Matters podcast, where we bring you the latest news, views and opinion from across the UK's dedicated fire industry. My name is Brian Sims and I'm the editor of Fire Safety Matters magazine. We're delighted that this podcast is sponsored by the Fire Safety Event, which runs at the NEC in Birmingham on the 27th, 28th and 29th of April 2021. To register for the show, visit www.firesafetyevent.com. Once again, I'm joined on the Fire Safety Matters podcast by my colleague Mark Sennett, the CEO at Western Business Media. Hi Mark, how are you? I'm very well, thanks, Brian. Back from Spain, sadly in quarantine due to the new government laws, but excited to do another edition of this podcast. So we always start off with the news this week. So what's the first story you want to cover, Brian? Well, my first story this time around, Mark, is a follow-up to episode nine of the Fire Safety Matters podcast, in fact, when I chatted with Roy Wilshire, the chair of the National Fire Chiefs Council. Roy has since written a detailed blog for the NFCC's website. This sets out his vision in terms of the current state of the nation as far as the fire industry is concerned, and also where the Fire and Rescue Service goes from here. Throughout the pandemic, the Fire and Rescue Service has continued to step up to the plate. As reported by Fire Safety Matters on numerous occasions, the tripartite agreement forged back in March has been extended to the 30th of September, while the number of COVID-related activities taken care of by Fire and Rescue Services right across across the nation, now numbers almost 400,000. That's a fantastic achievement, Mark. The efforts of firefighters have been magnificent throughout the pandemic, and all of us here at Fire Safety Matters offer our thanks and congratulations to them. All of the leading economists are forecasting difficult financial times ahead now. Last year was the first time in over a decade when the government's spending review didn't mean some kind of fiscal reduction for the fire and rescue services, but it remains to be seen what's going to happen next time around. In recent times, fire protection has seen welcome investment of £16 million, while another £7 million has gone towards supporting the implementation of the Grenfell Tower Inquiry recommendations. A further £4 million mark has been invested directly into the NFCC's own dedicated protection hub, and Roy Walshie himself is working diligently behind the scenes to have his funding baselined in upcoming spending reviews. One of the unintended consequences of building safety failure and the fact that 160 ACM-clad buildings still need to be remediated is the financial and psychological effect on leaseholders. Walshie has outlined that the NFCC is doing its level best to support them, in fact. The organisation is redrafting the simultaneous evacuation guidance to be more supportive of those leaseholders. Roy Walsh had chaired the National Operational Guidance Programme from its inception back in 2011, and as he led the transition from the Chief Fire Officers Association to what's now the NFCC, there was always going to be a requirement for solid programme management. Hence, Roy Walsh's suggestion that the established National Operational Guidance be transformed into the NFCC's Central Programme Office, a move which he refers to in the blog as being reasonably successful. To his great credit, Wilshire helped secure £1.5 million worth of funding per annum, that goes to the central program office to support fire standards related work. This year, in fact, he's also secured an extra three million pounds of home office investments to not only boost the work of the CPO, but in turn and provide vital implementation support for fire and rescue services themselves. Looking ahead to the next few years, Mark, Roy Walsh references the economic impact yet to be felt from COVID-19, as well as issues around pay claims, pension remediation, a probable new fire safety framework for England, Brexit, and of course, the eventual enactment of the much-discussed Building Safety Bill and the Fire Safety Bill as well. The NFCC is now buoyed by having the financial investment that's moved it from being an organisation turning over less than £1 million in 2017 to a £10.5 million organisation come 2020. The NFCC will have more full-time staff as a direct result of this, plus the dedication and commitment of all programme executives, committee chairs, and work stream leads. So all in all, I would say that's a very positive statement from Roy Wilshire. 
Well, Brian, when we talked off air about this, you said there are a lot of moving parts to this story, I think was how you how you described it. And we were talking about how we could break this down because it is it is a big news story and it covers so much. And you certainly weren't kidding. Gosh, where do I start replying to that? Well, let, let's talk about the obvious side of things. Right now, for the NFCC, they're in the middle of facing a number of things. You've got two new legislative bills that are going through Parliament. You've got the Fire Safety Bill and you've got the new building safety bill as well. You've got the effects of Grenfell and the inquiry there still waiting to come out from the findings of the independent inquiry that's coming out of there. And that does have a massive impact on the fire and rescue service because as you've seen there, they're reviewing their evacuation policies. And in this country, stay put policy has always been the idea of what a fire and rescue service wants you to do. And they're reviewing everything on that. And I would urge actually anyone that wants to learn more about the stay put policy, we've got a webinar that we did last year actually called to stay put or not to stay put. So have a listen to that. Just go to the FSM website and click on the webinars tab and have a listen back to that. But my point of bringing all this up, Brian, is as you said, so many moving parts. Uh, to be a chief fire officer right now, and obviously NFCC is above that, you know, with all the chief fire officers part of that, there is so much they've got to focus on. And also the economic pressures that you've talked there. We're in the middle of, officially now, we can say it, a recession. And I think most of us are expecting it to be as bad a recession as, well, we can think of in living memory, to be quite frank. It's like the way this is going to go. There's a need for investment in property, a need for investment in the fire and rescue service, even though fires, you know, fatal fires are at an all-time low in this country. But where's the money going to come from? And at the same time, Brian, you've got the situation here that we discussed on the last episode of this podcast, where you've got the unions quite rightly saying firefighters are doing more than ever before because of COVID-19. They're supporting other emergency services to give vital support. And that's a huge credit to them for doing it. But they want more funding for frontline firefighters in terms of their pay. And they've been offered a pay rise, but it's not to the level that the FPU are comfortable to accept on behalf of its members at this point. So when we interviewed Roy last week, you know, it was it was fascinating. But it came at a time when there's a lot of pressure on him and other people from the FCC about needing to put more investment back into the pockets of firefighters. And that, as you said there, is easier said than done, Brian, when we're in the middle of a recession. So right now, there is so much much that the NFCC has got to focus on. As I said, two new major potential regulations, legislation coming in. The impact of the Grenfell inquiry, reviewing everything to do with their evacuation policy. And, you know, I don't want to say it too strongly, but there is a chance that they could have another firefighter strike on their hands if they don't come to an agreement relatively quickly with the FBU. So there is a lot for us to keep an eye on here. A lot of good work being done by the NFCC and a lot of great work being done by firefighters at the moment. But that is not an easy job that Roy's got there and he's got a lot on his plate at the moment. So certainly you want to keep an eye on that one as, as we move forwards. So I'm going to go on to the next news story that I wanted to cover. Not not as in-depth as we just did on that one, but NFU Mutual has urged commercial property owners to maintain fire safety regimes. NFU Mutual is urging commercial property owners not to neglect fire risk assessments during this pandemic. The warning comes as the property insurance specialist has statistics that reveal a 46% spike in the number of commercial property fires during lockdown. The ongoing global crisis this has put pressure on commercial property owners and their tenants as they adopt new measures to ensure working environments are COVID secure. In many instances, this has involved changes to premises. 
As stated, NFU Mutual claims that the statistics depict a 46% rise in the number of commercial fires and the claims they've had from that between the 22nd of March 2020 and the 31st of July 2020 compared to the same period in 2019. Fire risk assessments are obviously a legal requirement for all non-domestic premises and these identify specific areas of fire risk and provide recommended corrective actions to safeguard the occupants. So I know you'll have some more to chip in in this in a second, Brian, but it's interesting statistic that 46% rise in the number of commercial fires. I know some people will think, mm, is arson potentially involved in that, uh, in, in a crisis like this? Could be. It doesn't go into that level of uh, detail. But what we do know is there is a number of premises, commercial premises, that were left vacant for a period of time and that does leave them at fire risk and it can be from arson from i'm not suggesting it's premises owners or premises renters that are that are doing this arson but yeah derelict empty buildings and occupied buildings certainly are more susceptible to that but as nfq mutual has said there is a lot more that needs to be focused on right now and you bring back in to play, bringing people back to the workplace safely. And if you want to focus a bit more on what suitable fire risk assessments that you should do, we actually have a column that comes out, as you know, Brian, in every issue of Fire Safety Manager called the Secret Risk Assessor. Now, I can't tell you who the Secret Risk Assessor is because obviously that would break the secret, but that person has been in the sector a long time and they have seen so many do's and don'ts in terms of failings to do with fire risk assessments. So they purposely don't reveal their identity because they don't want people to uh, know what premises or organisation they're talking about. But that column is fascinating. If you want to learn probably the, the do nots rather than the do's, that column is a must. So we've got that back in the issue, this issue that's just come out. So I'd urge you all to, to have a look at it. But Brian, you know, before we move on to the next news story, I don't know if you've got anything you want to add to this story. If there's something I picked out, Mark, and it's really a, a follow-on, if you like, to this story. NFU Mutual has outlined five top tips on fire safety vigilance going forward, and they are as follows. Uh, communication is key. Keep all stakeholders up to date with fire risk assessment progress and changes. Ensure that all records of contact details are kept up to date in case they're needed during an emergency situation. You mentioned fire risk assessments, Mark, and they're talking about regularly reviewing the fire risk assessment for a given location, particularly so if there have been any changes on the premises. Uh, they're talking about remaining cognizant of all relevant fire safety legislation. That's a prime one, of course. And last but not least, consider consulting fire safety and risk management professionals for technical information on fire safety. One, it's not a requirement for fire risk assessments to be documented if there are fewer than five documents in a given building, Mark, keeping a written record is still advisable. An insurer may not ask a building owner or manager for their fire risk assessment, but providing it at the outset can aid clarity during any subsequent claims, and that's worth bearing in mind. Our first guest on this edition of the Fire Safety Matters podcast is Tony Cash, the International President of the Rail Industry Fire Association. Tony is an experienced fire safety and emergency planning professional and currently employed as the Senior Fire Engineer at Heathrow Airport Limited. Prior to this, Tony enjoyed a period of consultancy as Infrastructure Director for Trenton Fire and also served in the role of Senior Engineer at Transport for London, during which time he was responsible for the coordination of plan reviews with the Fire Authority and managed both the issue and revision of building fire plans, working closely with the London Fire Brigade's transport fire safety team. Earlier this week, I spoke with Tony about a number of key topics, among them how the COVID-19 pandemic has affected fire safety on the railway network, and also the main changes to fire safety regimes on the railways since the findings of the King's Cross fire inquiry were made public.
first of all, Tony, can you tell us about your involvement with the Rail Industry Fire Association? Good morning, Brian. Thanks for that uh, very excellent question. I first became aware of the Rail Industry Fire Association in 2006 when I joined Transport for London as their fire engineer on London Underground. It was my head of profession who nominated me for the role as chairman of REFA in 2009, a role which I then held until about 2014. Around about that time, the executive polled members for the position of an international president so that the objectives of REFA could be taken out onto a global stage. And during the last decade, because of that, REFA has been really privileged to take part in some major overseas meetings and conferences. And we've had our name well spread around the globe. We've now got a membership which, for those who might be interested, covers continental Europe, North America, Scandinavia, China and the Middle East. And what that means is that good information can be brought from solutions all around the world and be shared with everybody. And could you elaborate on why REEF was created in the first place, Tony, and also outline the main aims of the organisation today? Thanks, Brian. So the roots of REEFA find themselves at the privatisation of British Rail, and that took place around about 1995. As the British Railways Board started to wind down, it became obvious that there wouldn't any longer be a single management body that had the overall responsibility for fire safety across the rail industry. REFA was therefore established by a number of rail industry organisations and became the appropriate body to continue that function, acting as the industry voice for the benefit of all its members and maintaining fire safety standards throughout the industry. It's a global not-for-profit association and its real purpose is to further excellence in rail fire safety, share experiences, best practices in the management of fire safety throughout the whole of that industry. And we do that by seeking out members who can come from railway operating companies, infrastructure companies, suppliers of equipment and services, and quite importantly also from the firefighting services. The one main thing about fire prevention and fire protection on railways is that it involves special considerations that are particular to an operational railway and its users. And we feel really proud that we've become the independent and authoritative source of fire safety information for rail industry best practice. In what ways has the COVID-19 pandemic impacted how the fire safety on the railways is managed, Tony? Well, like a number of industries, we're still subject to fire safety law because that applies at times of COVID-19 and indeed at times of any other kind of catastrophic or pandemic events. So the most important issues are that the effective and efficient use of life safety assets is being maintained and mothballing certain assets and ensuring sufficient staff are available all the times that safety critical roles have to be fulfilled trackside and on rail vehicles is really really important and if i can just single out one really vital issue it was discovered back in the late 80s at a train crash in purley that access for emergency service vehicles was significantly handicapped by people leaving cars parked around the roadsides so now that we're beginning to see people having to spend their time perhaps holidaying in the united kingdom Access is a really, really vital point. So perhaps we could just appeal to people when they do have to leave their cars and other vehicles that they leave them with sufficient space for the emergency services to gain access to the railway lines. Now, fire safety on the railways really came to the forefront in the wake of the King's Cross fire back in 1987. 
As a direct result of that tragedy, there was a public inquiry resulting in no less than 157 recommendations being made. What have been the main changes to fire safety on the railway since the findings of that inquiry, Tony? Thanks, Brian. And, you know, it would be really difficult to try and single out any one of those major changes. But in terms of those that have been key, amongst the really important ones have been those related to the selection of materials for construction. Also, the need to separate areas from the members of the public and staff areas using compartmentation, to subdivide areas on stations and on infrastructure, to implement early detection, and of course, to include suppression. All of those count as some of the major and significant changes that have been introduced. The ones that I wanted to concentrate on also include the less obvious. And the one that took the longest time to bring into force was that to improve radio communications. They're vital, of course, for interoperability and for command and control at a significant rail incident. What do you believe to be the single biggest challenge in terms of fire safety that the railway sector now faces? Well, Brian, if there was only one, uh, in many cases, just like the instance of the lessons learned from King's Cross, there have been a number of significant rail accidents, one just recently with the very tragic loss of three lives. The work that's been carried out by Reefa recently includes reviewing current and contributing to new British standards. For example, a high level of rolling stock fire safety in the British standard EN 45545-2 has just been republished. And as with the built environment post-Grenfell, competency remains one of the major challenges as the stakeholder engagement. Stakeholder engagement has been addressed by a recently developed and just published British standard, the management use of rail infrastructure. And it's a great example of collaborative working between REFA members. It was led by REFA and mandates the use of a stakeholder consultation workshop to ensure scope and technical requirements are binding on the works. And last but not least, Tony, if our readers want to find out more detail on REFA and its work, how can they access the information they need? Thanks, Brian. We're particularly proud that Fire Safety Matters is the official publication of REFA. And I know that from time to time we enjoy some articles within that most excellent magazine of yours. Our global membership is something that can be seen on our website. If readers want to visit www.refa-rail.co.uk, then they can find out ways that we interact with others, look at corporate memberships, which are of the order £300 a year, individual memberships for about £35 a year, or if all that fails, they're very welcome to either email me on aajcash at yahoo.co.uk or send me a text on 07786 caught your eye in the news this week yeah brian another interesting story that you wrote for us just last week actually and london fire brigade has reported 20 percent increase in smoking related fires since the start of lockdown so you can see a tenuous link by what we're doing here we're not we're carrying on the lockdown theme but we're also talking about premises protection as a result of covid19 so new figures issued by london fire brigade show the number of smoking related fires in the domestic setting has increased by around 20 percent in the uk since lockdown was announced 
Despite it being reported by Action on Smoking and Health and UCL that 1 million smokers in the UK have quit smoking during the pandemic, while the further 440,000 people have tried to kick the habit since late March. So smoking remains one of the leading causes of fires in the home environment. Last November, the Cube in Bolton, which plays host to students living in a fat-style kind of accommodation, was devastated by a fire that was found to have been started by a discarded cigarette on a combustible balcony. According to London Fire Brigade, discarded smoking materials had been the root cause of more than 500 fires during the lockdown period. Most notable among them were the blaze at London's Kennington at the tail end of June, which resulted in the first four flat being destroyed and no fewer than 18 people receiving treatment from London ambulance crews. So this is an interesting set of statistics, Brian. You know, smoking is, as we've seen through this article, one of the biggest causes of fires in domestic premises. Of course, there was that one devastating blaze as I went over that was caused by a cigarette butt that went into combustible materials. It's also often been a common theme of where you could have a fire if someone falls asleep while smoking and, and it can easily catch fire to the sofa or carpet and lead to absolutely devastating blaze that it's very easy to kill the occupant as well. So this is something that is a, a serious issue and that is quite, I think you said 500 fires caused by this during this period. So it's right the London Fire Brigade bring this up. Of course, yeah, it's another good reason to give up smoking because if you don't smoke in your own premises, there's no chance of a cigarette causing a fire, is there? So it's not just the normal health advice there of it's good for your health to give up smoking but there is also that situation where it's very easy to throw a cigarette butt into a bin onto a carpet into a combustible area of, of the building so if you're looking for a reason to give up smoking pretty good one given to you just by london fire brigade i don't know what you've got to add into that brian well london fire brigade themselves mark have made comment on this issue as you would expect uh, charlie pugsley who's the london fire brigade deputy assistant commissioner for fire safety has said and i quote when you read that one million people have given up smoking in recent months, you expect the number of smoking fires to mirror that finding and decrease. But we've actually seen the opposite. Lots of people have been working from home and staying indoors more, which might explain why we've witnessed a spike in smoking-related fires starting in various rooms in the home as people bring their smoking habits inside. We are seeing balcony fires all around the UK with worrying regularity, Mark most of which have been started either by the use of barbecues, as we've reported on Fire Safety Matters, or carelessly discarded cigarettes. With more people staying indoors to self-isolate or working from home during the COVID-19 lockdown, it's perhaps no surprise to see a rise in the figures. The simple steps to remove and replace combustible materials would solve the issue at a stroke, many would say. Richard Izzard, Managing Director of Non-Combustible Aluminium Decking Manufacturer Alidec, has actually observed that removing combustible materials such as timber or composite balcony decking will immediately result in safer buildings and help to protect lives and property. The other news item I've selected this week concerns the Fire Industry Association. The FI has just launched a new survey sent on the Internet of Things in a bid to determine who in the fire industry is working on the IoT, how they're working to implement it, what barriers they're facing in doing so at the present time, and also how the FI itself can help the industry overcome those issues. Put simply, and for those readers of Fire Safety Matters not yet familiar with this subject, the IoT is a system of interrelated computing devices, mechanical and digital machines, provided with unique identifiers and harboring the ability to transfer data over a network without requiring human-to-human -human or human-to-computer interaction. In the consumer market, IoT technology is most synonymous with products pertaining to the concept of the smart home, including devices and appliances, for instance, lighting fixtures, thermostats, home security systems and cameras. But support one or more common ecosystems and can be controlled via devices associated with that ecosystem, most commonly smartphones and smart speakers. Delivered on the popular SurveyMonkey platform, 
The FIA's multiple choice style survey asks key questions of practitioners, including what the IoT means to them at the present time and what areas of the IoT they believe to be most important to their organisation and, by extension, to the fire industry as a whole. Whether or not organisations are working on IoT-focused projects, and if not, why not, are further questions posed in the survey, while the FIA is also keen to ascertain what companies are trying to achieve through the IoT when it comes to their own specialist area of the fire sector. Speaking about the survey, Mark, FIA CEO Ian Moore stated, After the success of our impact of COVID-19 on the fire industry reports, we delve deep with our members to identify the next area about which they would like a better understanding. It's clear from these conversations that our members are keen to better understand the IoT and how it relates to the fire safety industry itself. This is precisely why we've launched the survey to begin that education process. Now, Ian Moore is a firm believer that the IoT presents a great many new opportunities for the fire industry, Mark, and could even transform this sector as we know it. He's absolutely right to think that way. When a human or a machine is making informed decisions, data is absolutely everything. It stands to reason that the more data we have at our fingertips, the more robust the decisions made can be. In addition to this, there are now multiple methods for enunciating information, such as alarm messages sent to mobile phones, and individuals' computer monitors. Planned maintenance can be more precise based on environmental conditions and performance criteria alike. The first step in enabling the IoT to be used to good effect in the fire sector is to investigate the current knowledge of FIA members and indeed the wider industry to see why the IoT can be used now and what needs to be done to make its implementation acceptable to the fire safety sector as a collective going forward. There are in fact 21 questions to answer which should only take participants a few minutes. Fire Safety Matters urges our readers, notably so those who are member companies of the FIA, of course, to take part. In doing so, they'll be actively helping to shape the future direction of the sector. Interested parties can find the link to the survey on the FIA's website at www.fia.uk.com forward slash news. Not a lot I can really add to that, Brian, that you and Ian Moore haven't said there. What I would say about the FIA is they're pretty much the market-leading association, not pretty much they are, in terms of really getting an insight into how the sector feels about things. They do a very, very good and in-detail market research report, which is like a state-of-the-industry survey every year. And this is kind of just a step on from that. They've looked at how the modern workplace is, is moving forwards in the wake of COVID-19. And again, they're looking forward to digital trends and the internet of things here. So it's it's great to see once again, the FIA are leading the way on that. As you said, I'd very much encourage people to take part in this survey because if they didn't get a true representation from the fire industry. They need as many participants in this survey as possible. And of course, we'll publish the findings of this survey and the report the second it comes out. So normally at this point I would introduce Warren Spencer but Warren has managed to get off on holiday for a week, a very very well earned holiday as well. As I said I'm currently quarantining from holiday so we couldn't get a strong enough signal for him in Turkey at the moment. So Warren will be back on the next episode and we've got quite a, a big case we want to cover with him next time but in the meantime if you want to get any questions to Warren please do send them to us via social media via LinkedIn or Twitter, just use the hashtag FSM podcast and Warren will be back with us for the next episode. And now it's at this stage of the podcast where we normally bring in a manufacturer interview. Brian, who have we got lined up this week? Our second guest on this edition of the Fire Safety Matters podcast is Tim Barker, UK account manager at FSI Limited, the specialist fire protection systems manufacturer. The business is well known for its expertise in fire stopping and compartmentation solutions. Tim has worked at FSI Limited since March 2017. In conversation with Mark, he talks about the importance of using suitable passive fire protection systems and also offers his thoughts on the new building safety bill recently unveiled by the government.
morning, Tim. How are you? I'm very well, sir. How are you? Yeah, long time no see. So it's definitely your turn to come onto the podcast. And I want to talk all about FSI today, company you've been with for a while. So let's talk about how you guys are coping under COVID-19. How has it affected FSI so far? What a, what a question. Uh, it's, um, it's affected as, as pretty much everybody else within the industry. It has been a very difficult, challenging time that we've gone through and to a degree are still going through. We put measures in right at the start and we've pretty much adhered to those throughout in terms of social distancing, production. We never stopped. However, we did slow down dramatically to probably 30-40% of our output, certainly in the earlier months. And latterly, and and as we speak now, we're probably back up to 70% because of the furlough. Uh, And then sadly, because of the same with any other industry as well, there have been a few casualties in terms of redundancies. But on the whole, it's been very challenging. And as I always try and take positives out of things, it's it's been quite a positive experience in the way that we've looked at managing and pushing our business forward. So obviously there's a lot going on in the fire sector at the moment, and you guys are specialists in passive fire protection products. I really wanted to pick your brain on the proposed building safety bill. Have you got any initial thoughts on this draft legislation that's going through Parliament? I've got some initial thoughts, personally and as a business. We look at anything that promotes standards or improvements pushing towards safety and fire safety as a a very positive step. And it's like all rules and regulations, and it's all very well having them. But we, as an industry and as individuals within the industry, also need to take note that those regulations are there to save lives. So every single one of us has got some accountability in adhering to these, the new bill that's in place, the legislations that are coming out. We're all accountable for it and we've all got, or we all should take a bit of ownership in promoting it and pushing it for it to succeed. So let's return our focus now onto FSI, your business. What products has FSI had out in the last 12 to 18 months? New products as such, that we've had a couple. We've um, we've got new test evidence now with the steel composite deck with the flooring, the trapezoidal areas. The bigger one is we now have spears and lubrizol approvement for the use around C- PVC sprinkler pipes, which has been more recently, probably over the last 12 months away, sort of on people's minds about what they can and can't use. Um, there's been lots of questions and lots of phone calls over the, the last 12 months about that. Um, so we've now got approval for that. We've got the FlexiCoat, which is quite a hefty movement capability with sort of large range of pipes and cables and can be a bespoke system. So there's a couple of three there that have, have been promoted certainly over the last 12, 18 months. And there will be things that we push you know, to continue our, our stamp on the industry within fire protection. Well, passive fire protection has really come to the fore in the wake of the Grenfell Tower tragedy. A lot more focus has gone into that. And we talked about draft legislation from the building safety bill that's coming into play. But as a company that specialises in that, have you got any interesting case studies that you could share with our readers and listeners? I could share some of it. uh, And as I'm sure you and the listeners and readers will be only too aware that some of the finite details about it we can't go into into too much depth. But sort of the significant ones, the Burj Khalifa in Dubai, 
we've been involved with when that was constructed. And more recently, the and I'm not a football fan, so apologies to everybody that is. Uh, the new Tottenham Stadium, we've been involved with that. Uh, and also the new modular site in Croydon, um, we worked very closely with Vision Modular Systems, which utilise many of our products there. And that's of particular note, and I'm quite proud because I was personally involved with that and, and quite uh, chuffed about it, is because it's the largest or the tallest modular build in the world, which um, at the start wasn't aware of, but during the process became apparent, which is... Uh, no mean feat in terms of the construction for a modular build but also for us to be involved with it and for the people that aren't familiar with fsi could you just give us a brief overview of the kind of products that you offer well what a question um passive fire protection so your fire resistant sealants your ablative coated bats intermittent collars and wraps um, intermittent sealants fire resistant compounds ablative coatings cavity barriers that we're now pushing which we'll go on to shortly i'm sure so it's pretty much the the full range of passive fire protection that people know and use throughout the uk if not the world and a question for you and hopefully you won't have to shoot me but you can answer but can i ask what's <laughs> next in the product pipeline for fsi uh, i won't shoot you but next time i see you i might but um What's next in the product? The next big project that we are currently working on and will be pushing over the next 18 months to two years is the cavity barrier facade market. We've recently sort of expanded into that area. We have a couple of professionals within the industry that now are on board with the the FSI family, which is quite exciting. It gives us um, lots of scope to push those products not only in the UK but around the world as well. We have been granted the DCD which is the Dubai Civil Defence certification so we can push growth over there and again our, our products and quality systems and it sounds quite corny but it's very true and it's very simple it, it does what it says on the tin. Our products will do what is required um, and what we tell them people and what it says it will do it does and, and again the fsi brand from when it started nine twenty years ago has always been about the technical input and, and doing things right well obviously you've grown as a company quite a bit you know you moved into bigger premises not so long back and and, and things are really moving forward as a company for you guys which is great to see but if people want to find out more about your products or to get in touch with you what's the easiest way to do so tim the easiest way would be to either email myself or tbarker at fsiltd.com or telephone the office on 01530 515130. And do you have a website people can visit for more information? Yes, they can. It's www.fsiltd.com. Brilliant. Well, it was great to catch up with you, as always, my friend. And yeah, thank you for coming on. No, thank you very much. It's been a privilege to be asked. It's been very good. And, and thank you for your time and thank you for, for asking us to be part of this.
brings us to the end of this latest edition of the Fire Safety Matters podcast. Many thanks indeed to Tony Cash of the Rail Industry Fire Association and also Tim Barker from FSI Limited for their valued contributions. You can read more on the issues raised here and others by visiting the Fire Safety Matters website at www.fsmatters.com. We do hope you've enjoyed the content and found it useful. On that note, please do contact us if there are any particular themes or issues you would like us to explore on upcoming broadcasts. You can do so on Twitter by using the hashtag FSMPodcast. Do make sure you follow us on Twitter at FSMatters underscore MAG. As a reminder, the Fire Safety Matters podcast is live to view every fortnight on Wednesdays. Please do like and share the content and spread the word among your industry colleagues. You can listen to the Fire Safety Matters podcast for free on iTunes, Spotify, YouTube or Podbean. All you need to do is access your chosen platform and enter the term Fire Safety Matters into the search box. We'll see you next time. (music) 